Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning we're still in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We saw earlier in the chapter that because of the work of Jesus as high priest, because of his work as sacrifice, we can draw near to God in faith. We can hold fast to the hope that we have, and we can even stir one another up towards love and good works. When it comes to doing all of that, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Some good news and some bad news. And usually when we frame it that way, when we say, I've got good news for you, I've got bad news, which do you want first? Which do you usually want first? The bad. The bad. Most people, when you ask them this question, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? Interestingly, we'll say, I want the bad news first. Occasionally, when I ask this question, you'll have someone say, no, I want the good news first. But those people are just trying to be different from everybody else. Most of us, deep down, make the choice the same way. We want the bad news, and then we want the good news. Have you ever thought about why that is? If you're going to be hit with two things, one good, one bad, why is it that so often we instinctively choose the bad first? I think the reason is, it seems like if there's good news coming, then the bad can only last for so long. You could tell yourself, Something bad is coming, and I want to be as strong as possible to endure it, so I should get the good news first, and that will strengthen me. That will bolster me to get through the bad. But the problem with that is I don't know how long that bad news is going to last, how huge the impact of it is going to be. So rather than taking the good first to strengthen me, what we tend to do is say, I'll take the bad, and then once that's over, I'll take the good. It'll be done with, and I can embrace and enjoy the good. Right? This is true in most areas of our lives. If you think about it this way, if you're at that point in life where you're about to get married, not naming any names, but let's say that was you, and I gave you the option that, that the relationship that you're about to enter into, it could start badly, but get really good, or option B, it could start well and then get really bad, which would you choose? I think most of us would prefer the option that may start rough, but gets good over time, right? We want to know that in our relationships, in our careers, in our stories, in our lives, that however bad things may get, that they're going to end good, that the way the story is going to end will be with the good news, not with the bad. And I think that's part of the reason why, even in such a simple question, do you want the good news first or the bad news, we instinctively Take the bad first. Like we know, okay, there's got to be something bad. I've got to endure something bad. But what gives me the ability to face it is knowing that after the bad will come the good. Well, the author of Hebrews understands this. He's going to give us some good news and some bad news, but not in that order. He's going to give us the bad news first. And then he's going to give us the good news. So let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 10 We're now at verse 26. Verse 26, we'll read the bad news, which is going to take us all the way through verse 31. Here's the bad news. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the bad news. That is the bad news in our passage. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. It is a fearful thing to know the promise of the Gospel and to reject it, to turn our backs on it. It is a fearful thing to be a part of this this covenant community of Christ and then to fall away from it. In other words, if we forget about Jesus we can forget about forgiveness. If we forget about Jesus, we can forget about forgiveness. I realize that sounds harsh. And as I formulated the words in my mind, I I struggled for a a nicer way of saying it. Because it really sounds negative to say, well, if you forget about Jesus, well, you can forget about forgiveness. There must be some kinder, gentler way to express the thought. But it's not really a kinder, gentle thought that needs to be expressed. It's it's a hard truth that needs to be expressed. If we turn our back on Him, if we neglect the salvation that He has offered, we can forget about forgiveness. There is no other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ. Now, as the author of Hebrews is writing these words, he's surrounded by people in the church who are doing this very thing. The reason why he's writing the book, and we've seen this again and again, is that something is happening in the life of the church where people embraced their faith enthusiastically at the very beginning. Over time, it's begun to change. A change has, has started. And what's happening is people who grew up under the old system, people who grew up under the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, that old Judaism, and then embraced Christ, those people are now going back. They're going back to the old ways. They were Christians. They were liberated from the shadows of the past. They now enjoy the reality of the promise, but over time, as they live that life, the old ways, the old habits, pull them back in. And so in the church, there is this rise of something called uh, Judaizing. In other words, what's happening is the gospel is being prefaced and it's, being, it, it's getting footnotes added and, and other rituals added so that it is no longer the gospel that Christ proclaimed. But instead, more and more, it is resembling the old priesthood, the old sacrifices, all of that stuff, observing all of those rituals is suddenly becoming important again. Right? The, this is the context in which we get the story from the book of Acts where Peter 
who is the person that, that God basically tells to go to the Gentiles, call no thing unclean that I have called clean, Peter now separates himself from Gentile believers. Peter buys into these things. So this is huge, the influence of this way of thinking in the church. And when something takes hold like that, when there is a slide like that, it's important that it not be addressed in a kind and gentle way. It's important that the people who are making this mistake recognize what they're doing for what it is. That they are turning their backs on the Gospel that's been proclaimed to them. It's nothing new. But we too constantly find ourselves drawn in so many different directions. One thing about the church that has been true from the very beginning is that the church has always been falling apart. The church has always been falling apart. The church has never been a well-oiled machine firing on all cylinders. We wouldn't have a New Testament if the church hadn't from the very beginning been pulled in so many different directions, so many different heresies, so many different false doctrines. All of those pressures were always there from the beginning. You see at the front of your order of worship this quote of G.K. Chesterton's. We uh, saw a quote of Chesterton last week about letting good things run wild. Here's another saying of Chesterton that I've always found fascinating. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. A lot of times we tell ourselves that in this day and age, we're just not doing Christianity. We're not doing church the way they used to. We're not doing it the way it was done before in the good old days. The reality is there have never been any good old days where the church has been concerned. Right? This has always been a fraught project. This has always been an alloy of the good and the bad because our hearts have always been lying to us about whether or not we can trust in the good news of the Gospel. Now, The apostates in the book of Hebrews, they're leaving Christ. Right? They're turning their back on the Gospel. And a lot of times when we think about what that is, we think about it as, as like uh, falling out of faith. They're losing their faith. But they're not losing their faith. They're putting their faith somewhere else. But people don't lose faith and then go from having faith to having no faith. What happens is their faith is placed somewhere else. Instead of trusting in the promise that God has made, His covenant, these people are trusting in the old ways. They're trusting in the shadows instead of the reality that has now been revealed. But they're trusting in something. They do have faith. It's just they've allowed that faith to be focused on the wrong thing. Now, Already, this point has been made earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, this contrast between what happens to you if you fail to keep the law and what will happen to you if you turn your back on Christ, if you abandon Christ. And the point is sort of, uh, well, you know, so throughout the book of Hebrews, we're being told Jesus is better than Moses. The, the new promises are better than the old promises. The new sacrifice is better than the old one. And this is sort of the inverted view of that argument. Because what we're being told is if the punishment for breaking the law of Moses was bad, then what must the judgment be for abandoning Christ? What must that look like? If it was true 
our text says, if it was true that, that you would die without mercy, it says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, if you set aside the law of Moses, then how much judgment would you deserve if you set aside Christ? So in the evidence of two or three witnesses, you would be condemned. And those witnesses, if you go back and look at the, the law of Moses, these are you know, other people who witnessed what you did, what your crime was, and they testified to it. Well, who testifies to the crime of the one who turns his back on Christ? We're given a list of witnesses, ironically. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Witness number one. Has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? That's number two has outraged the spirit of grace. That's number three. Those are the three who bear witness against the one who turns his back on Jesus Christ. And if those are the witnesses against you, and if God has promised vengeance is mine, well, as we see in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whenever we talk about the fear of the Lord and what it means to fear Him, one of the things we're always really quick to point out is that the fear of the Lord in the Bible doesn't mean literally fear. It doesn't mean terror. It means something more like reverence and awe. But here's where you begin to see the other side of that. right? Sometimes it does mean exactly those things that we don't want it to mean. Sometimes it does mean terror. Sometimes as, as sinful people in the presence of a holy God, Sinful people unwilling to put their faith and their trust in the Son of God. We ought to feel a little fear at the consequences of that. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God and to not be able to plead the cross of Christ in your defense. So Christ's sacrifice and priesthood, they've empowered us to draw near in faith, to hold fast to hope to stir one another up to love and good works. And if we abandon that, if we put our faith in anything else apart from Christ's work, then as you read in verse 26 earlier in the, uh, at the very beginning, that first sentence of our text, there is no other sacrifice. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you want forgiveness, there's one way. Because there is one sacrifice that has actually atoned for sin. And putting your faith in anything else, looking to anything else, is a hopeless cause. It's a hopeless cause. It's a fearful thing. So even if the Christian ideal is found difficult, in Chesterton's words, we must endure. Because there is no other hope. There is no other, way, no other way, no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. We must endure. Because if we forget about Jesus, we can forget about forgiveness. So we must endure. We must endure. And yet, and yet, even that isn't enough. I say we must endure. We must hold fast. And as true as that is, it's actually not enough. Because it's not enough to endure, you must endure in love. It's not enough to endure, we must endure in love. The Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, they endured. They went through hardship, they went through trials, 
difficulties, they were persecuted, and they endured. And not only did they endure, but they did not grow weary in that trial, in that persecution. So they didn't get tired of it. They embraced it. They endured. They persevered. They held on to the truth. Their confession of faith did not change. It was rock solid. It was unalterable. And yet, those Ephesians who endured, when Jesus writes a letter to that church in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation begins with these seven letters to the seven churches. The very first is the church at Ephesus. And it turns out that although they have endured, they have endured without growing weary, there is a problem. There is a problem with that church. This is Revelation 2, starting in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They still did what they did. They believed what they believed from the beginning, but they had abandoned the love that they had at first. And that was a problem. Like it's not enough just to endure. It's not enough just to be orthodox, to believe the right things. Uh, there's a early 20 or mid 20th century Christian philosopher Gordon Clark who once said, "I'm going to mangle the quote a little bit, but he said there's so little orthodoxy around it would be nice even to have a little dead orthodoxy." And I can sympathize with the sentiment, and yet it's not enough. It's not enough to be orthodox. You also must have love. Love is essential, so essential that you can believe all the right things. You can confess all the right things. Teach the doctrine exactly as it's meant to be taught. And if you don't have love, Jesus says, I'm going to come remove your lampstand. That's serious. You need to repent. He's not patting them on the back and saying, you know what? You're basically doing everything right, but you just need to be a little more loving about it and then everything will be fine. He treats that lack of love like it jeopardizes everything. Because it does. It's not enough to endure. You have to endure in love. When we think about love, we think about 1 Corinthians 13. But 1 Corinthians 13, which is all about love, begins by talking about what it is like to be without love. And these are important words to hear. 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's how important it is, this love. It's not enough to endure. We must endure in love. Great eloquence, great power, even great sacrifice are nothing without love. 
In Hebrews 10.24, which we looked at last time, we saw that, that when we're told to hold fast, we're told to draw near and hold fast, and then consider how to stir up love in one another, we're told, consider how to stir up love and good works. Right? Love and good works are put together as if they go together, as if they're connected somehow. That people who do good works love and people who love do good works. That seems to be the implication, that there's this tie. And it makes sense to us, right? When you think about what love is and what it's like to love, you realize that you don't think love. You don't think love. There's a lot of things you do think. Right? A lot of things are important to believe that are basically intellectual. Like doctrines that we need to confess, we strive to understand. Whether we understand them or not, we confess them because the Bible teaches them. We can think certain things, we can think rightly, but love is not something you think. Love is also not something you feel. You do not feel love. Although typically we think that's exactly what it is. That love is something I feel. Sometimes I feel loving. But love is more than that. You may have loving thoughts. You may have loving feelings. But love is ultimately something that you do. Something that you do. Like, how do you want to be loved? Like, do you want to be loved by having people think love toward you? Maybe feel some love toward you when you're in desperate circumstances. It can help, knowing that people wish you well. But I'd rather have them do love than to think it or to feel it. To stir up love and good works, these things go together. Love leads to doing something. So without love, even doing the right things isn't right. right? In the church in Ephesus, they are doing they're doing things, but they're doing them without the love that they used to have. So even that is called into question. You must do those things with love. Remember when Jesus washes the feet of his apostles? That amazing scene where Jesus humbles himself and he washes their feet. And he does this so that Forever after, these men can never lord it over one another. Right? Because Christ humbled himself. He modeled to them how they must treat one another. They must humble themselves towards one another. And when he does this, after he's performed this act, he gives them a new commandment, a new understanding. This is how all people will know you, he says. This is the reputation you will carry out into the world, that you will love one another as I have loved you. How has he loved them? He's just shown them how he loves them. In this humiliating, self-sacrificial, serving kind of way. That is how Jesus does love. And he says, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples. You do love the way I do it. The way I've done it unto you. That is his new commandment. It's impossible to love without doing love as Christ did it. You've heard James's words, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. In uh, James chapter 2, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
So the analogy that James uses, so you can understand what dead faith looks like, is well-wishing. Right? It's your heart being in the right place. You want to understand dead faith. It's the same as when your heart is in the right place and you do nothing about it. And you wish people in need well and you don't do anything to help. That's like dead faith. Faith without works is dead. Someone will say, James continues, you have faith and I have works. And James says this, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Really simple. Really simple. What I do reflects what I am. I will show you my faith by my works. I think this relationship between faith and works is also true for this relationship between endurance and love. Because things are difficult, sometimes in order to be uh, faithful, we decide to hunker down and be tenacious, to dig in. If life is hard, we've got to be harder than life itself. We've got to be tough because the world is tough. We've got to endure, be harder than everything around us. That's endurance, but it's dead endurance. It's dead endurance. Because that idea of just sheltering in place, of riding out the storm, it's not the kind of endurance that we're called to. We're called to endure in love. Just as we're called to have a faith that works. Our love should always be expressing itself in action. We endure by persevering in love. That's why in Revelation 2, Jesus says, repent and do the works you did at first. Right? He says to them, your problem is you've abandoned the love that you had at first. The solution is repent and do the works you did. Right? That connection between the love and the action is really close. So we need to remember our first love. Remember our first love, which sounds like a really sweet and charming thing to do. Right To go back in time and remember what it was like, those early days, those early moments of love, the euphoria of love, the way we felt when we were filled with a sense of love, the, the wonder, the excitement, the passion, the innocence, like all the unanswered questions before you, that sense of optimism. Like everything now will be good because love has entered into my life. If we could just recapture that, that enthusiasm, then everything would be right. And yet, even that isn't quite right. It's not about going back and recapturing the euphoria, getting back to feeling the way we used to feel. Something more is being pointed to here. So remembering the feeling isn't enough. We have to remember the reason. Remembering the feeling isn't enough. We have to remember the reason. When our relationships go bad, when our careers go bad, when we find ourselves in need of some course correction, we need wise counsel, someone to come in and help us get things back on track. One of the ways that we encourage people to stick with it and to endure is to remind them of how good things used to be. Don't throw away what you have, because remember how good it used to be. Right? Remember how happy you once were. Remember the good things. And if you can remember those good things, then there's hope that you could get there again, right? that you could experience those good things once more. If you just work at it, then you could feel in the future the way you felt 
in the past. And we encourage people to think this way to give them hope so that they can persevere. Things may be bad now, but you could recapture the feeling of those early days. You might think of this as a sort of therapeutic nostalgia. For our own good, we are encouraged to be nostalgic about past happiness so that we could recapture that and, and, and live it again in the future. The problem with nostalgia, though, is a lot of times nostalgia dresses the past up. Right? We can live our lives chasing after a joy and a happiness and innocence and optimism that we never actually felt. If you go back to the beginning, you would realize you had anxiety, you had doubt, you had questions, you were hoping things would firm up as time went on. It's only now, looking back, that you can say to yourself, oh, I was full of joy and euphoria and happiness. Nostalgia lies to us. It remembers things a little differently than they were. But nostalgia does something else. It, it, it focuses us on the idea that if we've lost our way, what we need to do is go back and, and feel the way we used to feel. And so the question of writing ourselves becomes the question of writing our emotions writing our hearts, feeling the way we want to feel. And what would make me happy? And what would make me fulfilled? What would fill me with excitement? Whatever that is, that's the thing that I need to pursue. That's the thing that I need to go after. The problem is, the things you would pursue, they aren't the reasons you felt the way you felt in the first place. If you were happy, if you were joyous, it wasn't because you had sought those things out that you found a formula for joy, experienced it. Instead, there was a reason for it. There was a reason for it. There was a belief that you had a confidence. There was a reality that you saw. And the problem isn't that you don't feel the way that you used to feel. The problem is that you don't see the thing you used to see as clearly as you used to see it. That's the problem. So the good news in Hebrews 10, has to do with going back. It has to do with recapturing that first love. But it's not the kind of advice we usually give ourselves. It's not about going back to the good old days and recapturing the past. It's actually about going back to the bad old days. So take a look at this. This is Hebrews 10, picking up in verse 12. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is the good news. That is the good news. It's not about remembering a feeling. It's about remembering the reason behind it all. The author of Hebrews doesn't say remember the good old days. 
Remember the euphoria of when you first believed? Because that's not what it was like. He says, remember when you first believed and people persecuted you? They were hard on you. You suffered. Remember when you first believed and people came and and took your possessions away from you? Remember those times? That's what you need to get back to. You would think this is absolutely the wrong advice. For people who are wavering, for people you're in doubt of, go and say, hey, remember when you first became a Christian, how bad your life got? You need to recapture that. Well, that's probably the reason they're trying to get away. And yet he points them back to the bad old days and says that in that there is something to learn. You suffered. He points you back to that suffering. Not because of the suffering, but because of how you endured it. You didn't just grit your teeth and get through it. You joyfully accepted it. Joyfully. The reason why he's pointing you back to that suffering is because you endured it joyfully. Because when they took your stuff, when they threw your friends in prison, when they persecuted you, when they mocked you, you endured it joyfully. That's the thing you've lost. What was the reason that you were able to suffer as you do now, but react totally different to it? How were you able to suffer then in your infancy, in your immaturity in faith, and yet feel a confidence that now, as you've progressed, you no longer feel? What was the reason for that? And the reason was the confidence. You could joyfully accept it because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You were willing to lose what you had now because what you were going to get was so much greater. The point isn't that things used to be good and they will be good again, just hold on. The point is that things weren't good, but you rejoiced in it. What changed was your hope, the object of your hope. You had a confidence that God would do the things He promised. You had a confidence that there would be a reward for your sacrifices, and so you made them joyfully. It's hard for us to fathom how it is that Christian martyrs of the past could not only have endured suffering, but embraced it. Not because they were masochists, not because they thought, hey, lions, I'd love to be eaten by one, but because they were willing to sacrifice what they had now Because what they would receive, what they had to look forward to, was so much greater. That was the hope they had. And it led them to rejoice even when the circumstances of their lives weren't the kind that make us euphoric and joyful. These people didn't need to recreate the the happy circumstances in which they had felt that joy because the circumstances weren't happy when they felt it. The circumstances aren't what made them joyful. The reward was what made them joyful. The future, the promise, is what made them joyful. So to recapture your first love, you have to remember this. Your confidence has a great reward. When you've done the will of God, you receive what is promised. We're so focused on this life, on the things that we have now, on the good that we experience now, 
that we forget the thing that if you ask us instinctively, we know. If I ask you, do you want the bad news first or the good news, you know you want the bad news first. So you can end on the good. But when we look at our lives, we tell ourselves, no, no, wait. We'd rather have the good now and not think about what's to come. That is exactly the wrong way to think about it. And you know that deep down. Instead, these Christians that were pointed to, these believers were able to endure the bad news now because they knew there was good news coming. Better news that would last and last. They lived by faith. And all too often, we live by feeling. The strength of our our faith, our sense of connection to God depends so much on how good we feel about it. And I'm not discounting that. I mean, it's good to feel good about it. I'm just saying it's not enough. It's not about the feeling. It's about the faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. Those who have faith preserve their souls. The good news isn't the faith. The good news is the object of the faith. It's not good for you, you have faith. Like I said, everybody has faith in something. The point isn't having faith. The point is what our faith is in. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Remembering the feeling isn't enough. We have to remember the reason. And the reason to remember is Christ's. Don't get so focused on what your reason was. Think about what Christ's reason was for enduring what he endured. Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, when he took on flesh and dwelt among us, when he allowed himself to be crucified on the cross to make atonement for sin, he had a reason for doing the things that he did. A reason he never forgot. The reason is us. We are his reason. We are his reason. We are his first love. And Jesus is a faithful lover. We close with these words from Ephesians. Paul says these words in Ephesians 5, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We want to remember our first love. We need to remember the love that Christ did. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.